Hello and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast. It is I, Sanson here, and I am delighted to welcome to you, welcome to you, welcome to you. I am delighted. Yeah, really pleased to have you here for an interview with Mark Vernon. Now, Mark is a trained psychotherapist. He works with the NHS. Uh, he is also an author and practitioner in all manners, spiritual and uh, sort of religious. He has got a really good grasp of being able to sort of align the spiritual and scientific. We're on slightly different sides of the divide, as in he is a theist. I am a a a a a atheist. Uh, but it means that you can have really interesting conversations with him. And that is what we're bringing you today. Admittedly, it was meant to be brought to you Last week, uh, I sort of set this up to be uh, transmuted and scheduled uh, by uh, ACAST, a supplier, and all sorts of things were lined up, but they didn't schedule, they didn't transmute. So this is the first podcast, which is late. So uh, a thousand Hail Marys for me, self-flagellation, and a trip into a uh, sort of some sort of solitary confinement, I think, just to go and contemplate my own tardiness. Uh, and yeah, well... Another thing which is quite interesting is that with Mark is we've known each other on and off for now eight years and it was also quite good to be able to sort of challenge some of the things he said about how uh, there's some sort of people who are scientific and atheist who just don't connect at all to anything spiritual or uh, can't really understand uh, the depths of religion and whenever I read that in his writing and I was always like no way hey, hey what about me I, I believe in science I sort of uh, love to look at the evidence for things I can still be enchanted by the oneness of the universe and uh, when I brought it up with him I you know <laughs> as I was saying it I suddenly realized that you know what when he's uh, when he's writing I'm not the person that he's thinking about in his mind there are plenty of people who don't really uh, connect to these things they Plenty of Richard Dawkins-style atheists who do think that anything which involves the S-word, the spiritual word, is a load of nonsense. So uh, that was uh, that was interesting because uh, previously, I somehow I thought that when he was writing, he was sort of you know having me in mind, which is weird that he doesn't. I thought everyone was thinking about me the whole time. Uh, so uh, yeah, really delighted to uh, give this pod to you. Mark is... Yeah, just a wonderful conversationalist. And uh, over to you. Mark Vernon, welcome to the Life on This podcast. Uh, how are you going today? Thanks very much, Jonathan. Nice to speak with you. And I'm well. It's been hot this week in the UK and in London in particular, but I don't mind it, actually. Yeah, we it's that weird thing where everyone is really sort of like complaining about it's been super wet and it takes about two days for us to start bemoaning the heat and even sort of mentioning the fact that we bemoan the heat becomes a cliche. And so uh, yeah, it's sort of hack material, but that is the case. Uh, annoyingly, someone near me uses their garden, I think maybe as a sort of some sort of industrial site. So I've had to shut the windows whilst recording this and I'm just slowly regretting the fact that I'm wearing a light blue shirt. So if we ever do get these online, you'll see a sweaty man. 
I was wondering how to describe you. I would say that you are, you're a psychotherapist, but you're an author, you're really interested at the interaction of spirituality and science and art. What would be the best way that you summarize what you do? Yeah, well, it's like a therapist and writer, I guess. Um, I do, I have a private practice. I've worked in the NHS um, and that, you know, is part of a very significant part of my week, the majority of my week. Um, but it feels that that is in a way like being at the coalface of inner life when you're with individuals wrestling with various things. And then writing about inner life um, is increasingly what I do otherwise. And I feel that it's a really crucial issue in our culture as well. So it's not just the personal work of the psychotherapist, but what it might mean culturally and socially that I try and have a think about too. And that's one of the reasons I want to get you on because you are, because you've got this, you're, you're working with real people and, but in a sort of clinical NHS uh, environment. So you do have the command of the science and the sort of, you know, you have to go and in, interact with the system so you can speak that system, but you also, you know, a big spiritual uh, seeker and inquirer. And uh, I thought it'd be a really great, there'd be some really profitable conversation to be had. And the first question we uh, always ask everyone is, what was the spiritual, religious or philosophical background to your childhood? It was very mainstream Church of England. My father was, uh, well, it still is an Anglican priest. Um, he, he was a curate, then he was in the army, and then lastly was a school chaplain. So very sort of institutional establishment uh, Christian religiosity here in England. And, you know, went to um, church, uh, even went to a church school, um, and was very interested in it actually, always been engaged by it in fact. Um, I have had my own sort of struggles with it. Um, I mean, I went, I became actually ordained myself as a clergyman and then left after about three years in a sort of slow motion breakdown and have been around and about ever since. Um, but um, it, 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 I'm certainly wrestling, I think, with uh, my kind of father's generation, which in a way I, I increasingly think of as the last generation that um, could do Christianity in this country relatively unproblematically. It was still quite a big part of the air that was breathed. Um, and so the role of the clergyman in um, the village or the workplace or institutions like the army was sort of accepted. And then that began to really fall apart in the 80s, which funny enough was the time I was getting training to be ordained and has been falling apart ever since. I suppose it's just that assumption that, you know, you've got the church, so you go to the church, you, if there is going to be someone in this institution, they will be religious and sort of unquestioning. Yeah, it was still part of um, you know, the fabric of the life of the country. Um, and, uh, you know, it may be people clearly had different kinds of religiosity. Um, but but I think few um, wouldn't have thought that if they got married, they, you know, they would have thought probably we'll have a church wedding. And when you had kids, you would have thought probably we'll get them baptised. Um, whereas now, of course, that's not the case at all. And it might well be the exceptions if you do those things. That's the flip that's occurred in a couple of generations. 
And I, it's quite funny when uh, I think about where my sort of spiritual journey has ended up, because you know Pippa Evans uh, very well, who I founded Sunday Assembly with. It was really working with her that I think we went into a bit more, of, oddly, into a bit more of a secular direction, even though she is uh, a bit more spiritual than I am and whatever sliding scale we're going to use for this. But that, that was a real driving force for me when looking at Sunday Assembly was this thing that we were going to be missing. There was, because I'd been to schools where you just went to church and I wasn't religious, but just understood that there was something in this cultural language, these ideas, which for me, I didn't have to be religious to see that they were important. And uh, yeah, what, what made you go and sort of have your slow motion disengagement with uh, the church? Well, you know, in, in a way, the personal story is that I, I, I loved training to be a priest. Um, I, it got me doing theology and um, the, the, the practice and the music of, of that kind of uh, intense religious period, which was three years in a college, um, was, I loved that. Um, I loved the enthusiasm of it and the sense of commitment and direction. Um, but then I went into a parish um, and um, didn't know anyone, um, perfectly nice parish. I was living on my own at the time and um, it was a complete shock. And then I also started to come up against um, the reality of being a clergy person, which is that, funny enough, any people who come to church, not everyone's actually that much interested in things like God or your spiritual life or personal transformation. They're much more interested in, you know, the fate worse than death, as I came to call them, that was going to happen in the summer um, or, you know, um, the, the, the business to do with the buildings or, you know, how the church school um, was going to run, those kind of things. And and it wasn't until I actually got into a parish, I realised I'm just not that interested in them. They're, they're perfectly worthy things in, in their own way and help build community and all sorts of stuff. But I'm just not that much engaged with it myself. Um, and so it was a bit of a wake up call professionally as well. So the kind of combo of the loneliness and um, what the reality of the work was going to be like. Um, but then I also got very sceptical, very angry um, about the church. So I was, I was kind of in that generation that started to really actively reject the church um, because of the various issues which still do the rounds um, over, um, at the time, you know, things like women priests, but homosexuality, um, all that uh, kicked off big time as well. And so um, I left um, thinking I was doing the right thing, you know, breathing the fresh air of enlightenment, reason and all that, you know, um, but it, 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 but I realised I still had a sort of religious soul, you might say. So the question in a way ever since has been, what am I going to do about that? Yeah, well, what a great place to go into our uh, second question we always ask is that if there was one thing that you think this sort of secular world that we're living in now could learn from religion or spiritual practices, what do you think it would be? I think it would be that the world that completely dominates our perception and energy and asks us to conform with it is just one aspect of the world, one dimension of the world. You know, the material world is not all that there is. Um, it's I think of it increasingly as the kind of most tangible tip of the iceberg that opens up onto um, intangible, but actually the felt aspects of reality, which is really where the energy comes from for life. Um, so partly that would be the human psyche, hence the interest in psychotherapy. Um, but it's more broadly the kind of spiritual dynamics that drive things. And although I don't think they've eased up in the modern world at all, 
um, we've become increasingly unable to engage with them as the material aspects of reality have just increasingly taken over. Um, and in fact, you know, this sort of flatland increasingly sucks in, it seems to me, to be the sort of spiritual reality and pretends it's not there. So our ancestors, for all their problems, they knew something which we just don't know almost anymore. Yeah, and uh, I'm going to sort of go in a slightly different direction and because I had an idea of where this was going to go. But I, I find myself in a similar position, but from this weird side of things where I'm an atheist. I know you're a theist, a sort of uh, non-materialist. And I, I also feel exactly the same thing as you. I, I don't think there's an outside uh, component to it or, you know, not probably not in the same way as you, but like this way of being, this way of connecting, this way of understanding uh, there, which has been developed in these all these different spiritual practices is just so lacking in the world. And it, it becomes almost hard to even try to explain it. My first uh, Edinburgh show was called Another Heartbreaking but Ultimately Life-Affirming Show About Death. And the title was so much better than the show. When I look back at it now, it was me trying to explain that I had spiritual feelings, but not having a word for it, of being like, actually, there is a just way of connecting to being alive where you feel totally different, where it gives you a truth of like what life can be, where it can guide you, where it can, you know, you can't always live up to it, but there is a way of being which is dramatically different to how most of us go through life. And that can make you sound like a bit of a twat, as though like you've, you're, you're, you've had a beer and you go, oh no, but it's only, you only really get it if you can really have read all these books or done a course on it or whatever that might be. And so that's why I, that's one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you. And, and there's actually a quote from some writing that uh, you did on uh, William Blake, which I'm going to see if I can find it right here. And yeah, and when the sun rises, do you not see a round disc of fire somewhat like a guinea? He has an, uh, as somewhat like a guinea, someone asks him. And then William Blake responds, oh no, no, I see an innumerable company of the heavenly host crying, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that way of seeing the world and experiencing the world is just so different. And I think we don't have a language. We certainly don't have a language of how you can do it if you're secular. Like, what is the, what's the advantage of sort of connecting with the world in this way? Like, what would be your saying of like, other than that sounds pretty great to see the sun like that. Like, what would be your, your sales pitch for this? Well, I mean, I, William Blake would certainly have said this, and I think this is true too. You're actually seeing reality as it is, not some abstract or rarefied or cut down version of it. Remember, he also famously warned us against single vision and Newton's sleep. Um, and when you see the company, the heavenly hosts and the sun, that's fourfold vision, he said. And it's, it's recognizing that um, the empirical senses are only one way of engaging with the world. Um, and that um, we human beings engage with life on all sorts of levels, but not discounting those other levels. So the imagination would be an obvious one that again, Blake wrote loads about. The imagination is not just some optional add-on that adds a bit of color and variety to otherwise gray existence. Um, it is the way that we see the world. Blake said that we're always already interacting with life through our imaginations. And the question is, do we trust our imaginations? Can it take us somewhere? Can we expand our sense of the imagination or do we constantly kind of try and corral and police it with scientific imperatives 
um, and so fall into uh, Newton's vision, uh, Newton's sleep and single vision. I mean, you mentioned death there, actually, and, and I, I think this is also why it really matters. It's, it's not just a kind of nice to have that maybe someone psychedelics will enjoy every so often or someone with an artistic bent might kind of pick up on occasion. Um, By the way, I'm, I'm well like, aware of my question of like, What's the benefit of spirituality? Is the least is the least <laughs> spiritual question here. Sum up in a, two sentences why this would be good as an option to have on the third day of your break to before you get back to work. So yeah. Well, actually, I mean, I I don't mind talking about it in that way. Um, but because I think we are called to know reality in all its fullness. Um, and so you know, why wouldn't you want that? Um, it, it, it's it's. It, I know why people are nervous about um, asking for the utility of spirituality because that makes it a bit self-centered. Like, you know, what can I asset strip from these traditions in order to boost my own capital? Um, but I think that um, we are actually called to know reality. Um, I mean, I mean, you mentioned death, just to sort of segue back to that because I think it, this partly shows why it also matters now. Um, We've, we're in the midst of it in the, in the pandemic, but certainly if it had been in the middle of the pandemic um, in the months prior to us talking. And um, I've been involved with a group called Doctors in Distress, which is trying to help uh, think about the situation which the NHS has found itself, particularly in during COVID, which is everybody outsourcing their anxiety about death onto the medical profession. And whilst if you're ill, you clearly want to go to a medic to get the best treatment you can, when you show up in a GP surgery or in an A&E or hospital, people bring everything else that they're worried around death with them as well. And the, um, the Doctors in Distress group is becoming increasingly clear that one of the things that COVID longer term is going to show up to us is that we need to have more ways of thinking about death than simply medicalizing it. Because the medical profession can't cope and the stress, in addition to the biological needs that people show up with, it's causing real problems in the NHS. Um, you know, some NHS trusts have up to a third of their staff off because of stress. And it's a complicated set of reasons why that's so. But a lot of it is that the NHS has been asked to bear our anxiety about life. And um, it can't bear that stress. It can't give us the answers we want. So we have to look elsewhere. And I think that spiritual traditions have got to be part of that. You're so right there that I think uh, the the NHS is really, we're almost looking at it, it's like the last functional, easily accessible institution sort of seems to chime with uh, the society at the moment. It's like, if you want to get adult social care, you're, you've got to be in a whole world of pain before they even approach you. Uh, people aren't rocking up to churches anymore. Where do you go with these questions? Where do you go with the sort of perennial problems that we've had? And uh, like suddenly lumping it onto the NHS when they're already overstretched for a whole host of reasons again, uh, is going to cause a huge amount of problems. And I suppose there, I think it's quite a good point to go to because we're sort of touching on sort of institutional forms of spirituality, what they should be to, I really loved uh, the work that you've done of from sort of really tracing the sort of rise of religion and the religious impulse uh, back into, yeah, our prehistory, humans prehistory through uh, the lens of. Yeah, well, the sort of two, elements to this in a way. One was that I was getting increasingly angry with these big histories that you can buy that tell the story of the human species. The most famous is uh, uh, Noah Yeovil Harari's Sapiens. 
Um, and again, just like stripping out what feels to me like the heart of the story and telling our story as if it's just a, a story about the struggle to get technologies that help us survive. Um, that's sort of what it seems to boil down to. There's lots of interesting details on the way, um, but a, a very mechanistic um, and dry um, account of what it is to be human, soulless. And then also we're full of all sorts of strange um, contradictions really. So like Harari in his book will talk about how the difference that, hu that humans have is that they tell fictions, that we tell each other stories about things that don't really exist and this helps us survive. Um, but of course, the one thing that he doesn't think is a fiction is his science. And he doesn't seem to factor that into his evolutionary story. Um, you know, as if, if, if that's all the human beings can do, then why isn't his science a fiction too? So I feel increasingly frustrated about that, but I think it really matters. You know, these books sell a lot and they, they, they're the background noise that everyone then interprets their lives through. And so actually, even in quite often spiritual circles, the number of mechanistic metaphors that you hear, people are constantly about optimizing their life or hacking their brains or going for a deep dive into the information abyss of their neurology or, you know, all these kind of mechanistic metaphors then fill up the spiritual space. Um, but, you know, metaphors are really powerful. They will shape life for you. Um, so I partly wanted to try and redress that by telling this alternative story. But then I also got involved with a group that was actually headed up by an Oxford um, research group and the, a figure of um, Robin Dunbar, who's a very well-known evolutionary anthropologist. And he was interested with his group in reviving an older account of the origins of Homo sapiens, which is, it's, it's often associated with Durkheim in the 20th century, the sociologist who talked about the importance of effervescence in terms of group bonding. Um, so the idea broadly is that if chimps spend their time grooming in order to secure their group affections and help life and so on, um, human beings developed these collective states of mind through maybe things like ritual or trance, whatever it might be. Um, and that was our way of forming societies. Um, but with this added inflection that it's not just a kind of useful fiction that helps hold people together as someone like Harari might say, um, but that our minds got very adept and drawn by exploring the worlds that opened up using these um, practices. Uh, when, you know, I think ritual um, would have shaped every aspect of life. Um, it wasn't just something you tagged on when you thought about it, if life wasn't going very well, but up until, you know, maybe, well, maybe even 500 years ago, maybe less, um, the whole of life was interpreted and experienced and shaped through rituals. Um, and, you know, from the simplest ones like sitting around the campfire to very elaborate rituals associated with priests and kings that you can read about in spiritual texts. Um, and I think this is real. This opens up a side of life that's real and that our evolution has shaped us to engage with. And so it's barely, it's not surprising that when we decided collectively to kind of try and cut that out in the modern liberal West, at least, um, things start to go very wrong. And people do have mental health crises and um, our reaching for technology gets out of control. Um, yeah, so it's, it's to partly try and tell a, a bit of a different big history that it's not just a nice idea if it were true, but actually there's um, new science, which I think is replacing the old science that um, is, has been informing the kind of cultural stories that people otherwise tell, particularly in the in the very secular media that always treats religion with a bit of you know kid gloves.
Yeah, and I think that's why sometimes when I'm reading your work, uh, I sometimes bristle against it when it's like this cold science. And I always feel like, oh, no, mate, I'm here. I believe in the science, but also that this stuff is real and it's got stuff to teach us. And weirdly, you're not thinking about me when you write these things. And I think I should bear it that in mind. In the states that we get into where we are sort of more connected we are you know we've got that feeling that we're one we sort of lose sense of time we start to feel that you know uh that we we lose that separateness and that is that is true like we are like we are hopelessly interconnected with any everything we could not be removed from uh the world for one minute without instantly popping and dying we uh you constantly hear in uh you know people talking about the environment the economy social justice that we need to go and realize how connected we are to everything and yet you know that is what these technologies are all about and that is it's not sort of some state which sort of temporarily sort of goes infects your mind and you're going to be at the wilderness festival so will uh, i and it's not like you go there and it's like oh well that's just some sort of fantasy now back to the real world you're like no that is the real world we are like uh actually wilderness is the shishiest of festivals ever existed if anywhere was not the real world it would be that but that that way of being it's it's not that useful for lots of things if you've got to pick up a stick if you've got to go and fight a tiger like realizing imagining that all the trees are on your side and they're all going to come for you it's not gonna it's not gonna get you through like it's useful to have this like separateness to go and do some things but if we go and lose that sense of like real connection then then obviously there's going to be some sort of serious effects on us and society and and I suppose from your sort of point of view as a psychotherapist, like what are some of the things that you see people presenting themselves with, which you think, you know, underneath it, there's like some of this lack of sort of spiritual connective tissue, whatever it might be. That, that I'm still so annoyed that, you know, people just always think that word is only religious. So I'm going to campaign for people to say it otherwise. Yeah. But like, how does this present itself to you in your therapy room? Well, to answer that, I'm actually going to, I think, challenge part of what you were saying, at least push back a bit, because I think part of the problem, too, is that we now feel this sense of connectedness has got to be this exceptional kind of peak experience that we need special spiritual technologies to access. Um, and I think that, too, is um, part of the degeneracy, you might even say, of our times. I, I do accept that sometimes um, a trip, a ritual, a peak experience kind of makes people realise that there's more to life perhaps than just going shopping at the supermarket and, and looking after your pension plan. Um, you know, I, I do accept that that can really help people, but I think that we're really- I'd say, by the way, to... I think you might be, and maybe it's because I'm speaking about it and you are bringing some assumptions from how people speak about it in other areas or like this world of psychedelia or going to festivals. No, I don't think that that's the case at all. I think you it can change how you are in the world and that like there are things but that it's also you know this sense that i am an object and i control my agency what have you is there is a use in that uh, as well uh yeah yeah but, no, okay, okay fair enough fair enough yeah um i stand corrected of my correction and, uh... <laughs> <laughs> let's keep on doing this it's going to be like loads of little footnotes like letters to the editor up one after the other yeah so keep well, on going. So, but, but the, the, the main the substantive point you know mm. is that um Actually, I think that um, it's possible to know this sense of connection in the most mundane of circumstances. Mm. In, in a way, the more mundane it becomes, the better. 
Mm. Um, and I think in, in to, to turn to the bit about um, therapy, I think, you know, people come with all sorts of um, troubles and questions and things they want to explore. Um, but in, in, some, in some ways, I think of it as, we'll put it like this, if there's a sort of model of the human psyche, there's the, there's the, the manifest bit, the body, the bit that we sort of mm. see with our empirical senses, but we as, as Wittgenstein pointed out, we never actually relate to anyone as a body. We always already relate to them as a soul, um, which is why there's a sort of dynamic sense of interchange when people meet and Did you see you a living person. Can you expand on that a bit? Uh, because I think there'll be some people listening who will uh, not follow that through. Yeah, so by soul, I just, and I do appreciate you, you know, use these words because they mean all sorts of things. I just mean the kind of something that's alive that's that has mm. personality struggles character depth something that's hidden as well as seen um mm. mysteries to ourselves quite often um so that that kind of quality of being alive we're not just biological robots um, yeah. that are following a program um that's really quite clear um so but that soulfulness that that level mm. level of our being um can get caught up in all sorts of tangles and complications. And in some ways I increasingly think of therapy as um, understanding enough about those complications in order to be eased of the suffering that they undoubtedly bring, mm. but also to be able to start to see more of our being than just my own personal complications that have landed with me in life. And that more is very much the sense of, of everyday connection. Um, mm. You know, so, I mean, so you might put it like this, you know, I've got five fingers on my hands and I guess you've got five fingers on your hands. Yeah. You know, um, that tends to be the way that human beings are born. Um, and it's not just random that I happen to have a hand and you happen to have a hand. Mm. It's part of our, our deep connection. And similarly, I think the psyche is like that. My mind and your mind, they have our particular personal qualities, um, but nonetheless, there's something that's deeply shared in our minds which is why we can communicate, why this strange thing called language, these sound waves that we exchange, don't just sound like sound waves, they sound mm. like meaning. And they, of course, they are meaningful, as we wouldn't even be able to talk and ha have this sort of shared collective space. So I think stressing that sense of connectivity um, that happens all day, every day, anyway, without needing to reach for anything exceptional, that is mm. really where healing starts to begin, I think. As you were saying this, and this is why I, you know, love thinking and practicing this, I did slightly get into the, all right, I'm just going to go and ramp up the feeling connected. And I don't know if it'll come across on the audio, but I started slightly smiling like a loon and just really trying to go and feel that. And it changed how I was hearing you. It changed the feeling I had in my body. It uh, Maybe it makes for awful podcasting. But that's the thing is that once we start to go and like even connect to the idea of connection it changes you know really our perception of the world and and that feeling of like isolation that feeling of loneliness which you know even uh, that like even like saints saints like psychotherapists like whoever holy men will also holy men also get the blues so it's not like the answer to uh everything but it is that sort of comfort it can be the comfort when you've got the least is if you start to go and generate this idea of sort of like uh like almost a self-generating sense of connection well obviously it's not self-generating because we're all connected to everything but 
you know you get the idea and but it and, is it is a real art though and so mm. you know it's one thing to feel the connection but then in a way comes the real question which is okay so how am i actually going to live because we are called i think as well to um to kind of manifest this shared being as fully as we can as individuals as well as know that it's just our i don't know reflection of the one light um to use a bit of a theistic metaphor but nonetheless um, and uh, yeah, and, and that's that's that that really takes a lot and maybe only a few people really achieve it. It's, you, you know it when you see it, though, it's the kind of the person you meet who is definitely a person and they may have a very pronounced character, actually. And yet somehow that is a channel for way more. So you always feel there's, you know, perhaps you're not know you don't know quite what they're going to say, but you know you want to hear them say it or you, you're struck by a kind of quality of beauty in them that isn't just glossy beauty, but is a kind of maybe quite a hard-won um, suffering kind of beauty. And, but they, they communicate the depths to you. And so those two things, I think, do go together, actually. It's not like blitz the ego, which is another thing that's sometimes said. Um, that, I mean, if you work in a mental health hospital, you know that that's a complete disaster. Um, so there's something more subtle as well as every day um, that we're asked to um you know become more and more familiar with and inhabit across our life it's i think it's that which basically does give life meaning yeah and uh it's i, I do love this idea of i've been thinking about it for a while like that you know this idea of the holy man holy woman uh holy person uh that there are there is a way to live a way to be that is so remarkable the only explanation is that you are touched by God. <laughs> How wonderful is it that humans have that capacity? That they're like, oh, well, they are so nice that I think the logical thing is that divinity is sort of working through them. That's got to be the idea. And, and, so, and it also goes and joins up with this conversation that we've been having, or at least I've been having, of how like how can we go and learn from spiritual practices you know when you said that connection to the i think it was like the connection to the divinity the oneness like i uh really love the work of meister eckhart because when you know he's talking about like uh the connection to you know he's talking about the the godhead becomes in you the whatever it might be like i i can really recognize the the thoughts and feelings and states of being that he's talking about is something that really connects with me. And that if a secular person was to go and find a way of looking at it and being able to, okay, I, for me, I go and swap the word Lord with life and sort of don't find my way of translating it. It is so applicable to your life. And it is, it, it does lead to this, uh, like a, a changed understanding of the world and a changed way of being in the world. I guess for one thing I wanted to ask you was, you know, if you, I don't know in your therapy, whether you suggest people do things or whether like it's like a coaching thing where they go and suggest them themselves. Uh, like how would you encourage someone to go and go on a journey to go and explore this and go and awaken this? Uh, because obviously you're going to do it in a context where you can't just say go to church or <laughs> whatever it might be. So well, um, I might, you might do actually. You might, I mean, oh, you might know, you? I think okay. a, a lot of um, therapists, and I'd be certainly count myself in this camp, are very eclectic now. Um, you know, the idea is you'd have a training in one school that gives you depth and sort of puts you through the mill a bit. That's always worth doing. Um, but once you've learned to speak that language, then you can learn to start to speak the language in your own way. 
And so um, you, you, you might uh, suggest all sorts of things that you feel will be useful to people. So you're constantly trying to stay alert to what might be useful to people. Um, but I mean, but you, I mean, I love it when you mention iCart because I like um, iCart a lot too. And um, in a way, you know, I, I, you feel the sense of connection when you talk, um, as we're doing. But you also perhaps it's just tune in that little bit more and feel that the two of us, you might say, are reaching for a third thing that neither of us actually own, although we maybe long for or get glimpses of. Um, and want to orientate our life around more and more. And, you know, you, ICART does use the language of the soul and um, trying to know that place in yourself, which is, he, he would call it the uncreate, uncreated part of you, um, which is in a way that timeless dimension out of which all our um, timed jollity struggle, exchange and so on springs but which also all that stuff can lead back to. And so just tuning in when you're having conversations, clearly it's easier when you're having a spiritual kind of conversation to try and feel that presence. Um, I think I, that's what Icarp was onto. Um, and, you know, he's one of these advocates of what's sometimes called the direct path now, um, where you can feel that very quickly. You don't need to do years of fancy uh, meditation to get the sense of it. It may then take years of practice to really inhabit it more and more fully, but nonetheless, it's there all the time. Um, and, you know, a, a quite a quick sort of shift of perspective can can reveal that, in fact. Uh, the uh, on, uh, but maybe this is quite an amusing illustration of the uh, the difference between the sort of quick understanding of, and then the sort of struggle to put it into practice. I do have a, uh, a picture which is there of uh, his wonderful, uh, uh, line, if the only prayer you say in your entire life is thank you, that would be enough. And so when I speak, when like Lifefulness Sunday Assembly is a celebration of life, like the Lifefulness Project is where I do my work from. My my first show was another heartbreaking, but ultimately life affirming show about death. When I go and think about life and all that it has, then how can infinite gratitude not be the result of it? You know, how can this sort of like uh, this of up this wellspring suddenly go and be like untapped you go and drop like if you're unfamiliar in these terms for listeners this is idea of the ground of your being and so that's the part in you when you're not a father you're not a son you're not your linkedin profile you're not british it's like you before words and before concepts oh my gosh that is where this there's a truth which you're sort of you both always know and are always pursuing uh, and uh and so I look at that and think, you know, and, and love his work because of it. Uh, it's also been uh, sort of slightly broken for about three months and it's just been sitting there. And I've always thought, oh, God, I've really got around, got to get around to think, I've got to get around to fixing that. <laughs> so just because you're not doing that sort of work, it doesn't suddenly mean that you, the rest of your life is suddenly fixed all in one go. Uh, oh, no, I mean, and, and, you know, I think that's part of the reason why this COVID period is um, it's both so testing, but also is an opportunity, if I can sort of dare to put it that way, um, because, um, you know, for many of us in Western society, for much of the time, life does go fine. You know, we have our ups and downs through the day, but we can hope to feel secure, at least in terms of our um, physical being. And yet COVID has meant that death's walking past our doors and 
um, you know, we've had it in our house, I had it, and this, that, that's a moment of real, um, where you really know whether how much you've inhabited this sense of life in all its fullness, um, because something like that happens, then you start to worry, and you think, when do I call the hospital? Um, you know, what is that symptom? How is it going to go? And so on. Um, and you realise that you are still, to use slightly jargony phrase, identified, you know, with your, say, more finite self that um, actually does identify as being a father or being a this or being a that. Um, and and you've, in that instant, you almost lose touch with this ground that has these more eternal um, qualities that are both you, but also much more than you. Um, so, lean, you know, leaning into these moments of anxiety, these little deaths would be a psychotherapeutic way of putting it, and where you feel you might be losing something. They're actually really key moments to try and get hold of and gently, of course, but to feel into, to try and understand where your anxiety lies and how it might be felt through. So there might be a kind of another side. Um, so that when real crises do happen, you've got more to draw on um, than just um, the panic. And so circling back to that thing of like, if someone wanted to go and develop more of these, uh, uh, more of this quality to go and sort of explore this uh, more, what are, what are some of the sort of practices or that like readings that, that people would could go on if they want to go and in, into this journey? Well, I would, I mean, I think the practices are, um, uh, you know, kind of quite easy to access now, whether it be on an app or you know, maybe quite soon we'll be going back to meditation centers or churches, perhaps, if that is your metier, um, and getting more of a sense of in-person community again, all these kind of things. And um, the thing that I feel is often missing, actually, is a more intellectual side to it. Um, you know, someone like Eichhardt, who you mentioned, he's not actually an easy read, but struggling with what he's really trying to get at is itself part of this waking up. And so I feel that maybe we're in a phase that um, needs to drop some of the anti-intellectualism in um, spiritual circles and to start to get back into a bit of discernment and asking even metaphysical questions. You know, what, fine, you have this experience, but what, how does it stack up? Um, what kind of world does it suggest to you? And I think that's so important for bringing the peak experiences down to some kind of um, everydayness as well. Um, and also it's, you know, if we human beings have minds as well as hearts, as well as bodies and all the rest of it, to bring all of that to appreciate more and more of reality has got to be part of it as well. And the world is intelligible. Minds can understand it as well as experience. Um, and so that, that's that I sort of sense somehow in as much as I see it, that's maybe where the spiritual seeking communities um, are at. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite a probative intellectual in, endeavour. I would love it if a man with that many books behind him and your own, the character that I know you have, just shut away, just out with the books. Should I tell you, go, go and really get into fitness. Uh, I would say uh, dance a lot. That's uh, toss it, toss it, you know, books. Who needs them? It, it, like even when I started Sunday Assembly, I was, you know, wanted to do something which was like church, but without the God bit where people could go and experience a life. But I hadn't sort of gone and done my uh, uh, vicar training or anything like that. And yeah, clearly sort of going and finding out more about it, you know, goes and improves the quality of experience. Uh, I mean, that sort of circles back to some of the other stuff you do as well around Blake and Dante. And I think this sort of points to some of the questions I was asking about that, like that journey that people go on. One thing which I really noticed in uh, 
uh, both of your writings uh, about them was that there was this idea of progress for both of them, this idea of sort of uh, spiritual growth in Dante, uh, of sort of Dante's Inferno, sort of starting off in hell, going through purgatory, sort of going up to heaven as a spiritual growth. And then in William Blake, uh, I don't have them to hand. Uh, so what would you say is that sort of spiritual like journey of like the sort of stages that people can uh, go on? Yeah, um, I mean, I prefer sort of expansion rather than growth, just because um, growth always has these connotations of sort of linear progress and it's very closely associated with economic growth, um, you know, as if um, somehow we accumulate these things and both Dante and Blake actually were realized that the accumulation model um, is inherently sort of possessive. It's like, it's gotta be me knowing more and more. Um, whereas actually they, they talked about in terms of return rather than growth. So this is actually an idea of the story of humanity going forwards. If, you know, we were talking earlier about the evolutionary history of humanity in the past, the, the story going forwards, um, they felt draws from broadly neoplatonic traditions, which is the idea that um, everything came from one and it was in the nature of the one to emanate because creativity and love and light, that's just kind of what it does. And that we're part of that creation of um, eminent light. Um, and that uh, what certainly we human beings seem able to do, but I, my sense is the whole of nature as well, is to become co-creators in that process. But the direction of travel is to sort of return back to the one um, but with more diversity, more colour, um, more sort of dance, if you like. Um, so Blake, for example, he was very clear that nature isn't creation completed, it's creation on the way to becoming completed. And so when he said things like, um, can you perceive, um, you know, eternity um, in a wildflower, um, have, uh, heaven in a wildflower, eternity in an hour and these kind of things, he wasn't just saying, you know, have a quick trip by reading my verse. He was saying, no, can you sense your direction of travel? That it seems to be part of the human vocation in our place amongst other um, parts of nature and to be part of that return, bringing our distinctive consciousness to that, um, which is to um, understand as well as just to experience. And there's something about that understanding and that amplification, that expansion, that means um, nature can become more and more itself, which is to recover its divine aspects and so return. And that, that, that future story, I think, really matters in terms of understanding our direction of travel. I mean, another way of putting it is that um, I think in the ecological crises of now, um, we won't, it won't go well unless human beings do actually accept that, as well as Karl Marx put it, actually, Karl Marx, to quote an atheist, he said that no, human beings are what he called universal beings, by which he meant that our minds can grasp the whole. Um, you know, so far as I know, my pussycats, um, they have in a kind of intelligence and they certainly ap appreciate life and can suffer at times, but I don't think they contemplate the whole in the way that you and I perhaps are partly doing I in mean, a conversation like this. I think that's so quite- that. 
that's quite anti-cat. Not, not minimise our role in creation, as it were. Yeah. You've got to realise how popular our cats are on the internet. I want to dissociate myself from this view. I know it's very think... dangerous. I'm at risk of cancelling myself and all the oh, rest of it. Oh no, yeah, yeah. this is going so well, Vernon. <laughs> this is where this is where the journey ends. No return for you, my friend. Okay, well, let me push on then and quickly forget the cat bit. <laughs> The point is, we've got to kind of know who we are in this mm. game, I think. Um, and that means not um, becoming misanthropic um, or, you know, saying the one species that shouldn't be here is the human species and so much you can um, read, um, but it's to understand our calling more. And I think that means actually moving beyond the story that we're these kind of technological progressing creatures that grow and consume more and more um, you know, reach out more and more into the material world, even onto other planets. Um, you know, maybe that will happen, who knows. Um, but certainly our ancestors until very recently and figures like Blake still held this sense. Um, we're called to reach um, into these spiritual dimensions and grow in that way, to, to, to use the growth word. And I think we've got, to, we've got to recover that because the material world's too small. You know, the mm. whole of the material cosmos would still be too small. You know, at some indefinite point in the future, it'd just be a story of humanity going from one planet to the next and exploiting it. Um, we've got to think of other ways of being in the cosmos. And I think that requires a recovery of spiritual sensibilities. I, I think you're spot on there. That idea that we have got, we're creatures of infinite longing, right? You can go and, you, you can go and build. I, but there's Richard Branson building his rocket. Oh no, <laughs> he, he used to have a rocket. He used to be the rocket guy. Now there's two people with rockets. And in fact, you know, Tesla is, uh, Elon Musk is subtweeting Jeff Bezos because his rocket didn't actually go to space. You're like, guys, when like, you know, Richard Branson is probably now looking at his mountains of money, which have come from quite shitty railway lines uh, and uh, which he used to think of like Scrooge McDuck could dive into it and it would never end. And he suddenly reached the edge of his swimming pool. He can't really get a rocket rocket. And and yet there is a capacity for humans to venture inwards and to to experience a richness of being that you would well i mean i've never been given the option of 150 billion dollars or like uh sort of a spiritual progress so i can say i wouldn't take the 150 billion dollars but luckily i'll never be put in that situation but like if we start to think about this post-growth world which is what economic growth that idea of returning inwards and uh you know uh coming back to the place that you once were and seeing that it is totally changed. Someone said that, but, but better yeah. than me. Well, look, for $9.99, you can buy Dante's Divine Comedy and <laughs> you can spend quite a long time getting into it, trying to um, let it work on you so that gradually it's kind of labyrinth leads you towards the center. And then you can touch the stars. And remember, I mean, I quite like this. Dan Dante was actually the one who invented the word transhumanism or transhumanized. Um, back in the 13th century. Um, and it's now been, you know, horribly perverted into this ever, ever, you know, never ending kind of material extension of life or uploading yourself onto a computer and various other fantasies like that. And um, he thought that it was about becoming more um, familiar with yourself and the intimacies of life and realizing that they're kind of fractal, that they open up mm. um, into more and more. And that's the way to go. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's inner space, not outer space, um, where the infinity can actually be found, I think. 
Um, so yeah, anyway, for $9.99 and a bit of simple technology, <laughs> like a printed book, you can go further than Jeff Bezos with all his money. Yeah. The, uh, by the way, I thought you were going to go on to a plug for one of your books. And I was like, oh, wow, what a bold, what a bold move at the end of some conversation about <laughs> losing materialism. But luckily you went for someone, uh, for Dante uh, there. But uh, hey, Mark, this has been a great chat. And uh, yeah, so rich. I mean, also for like personally, just being able to you know, when I go and read stuff you do, and I'm sure you read about Sunday Assembly or various ideas about it, and uh, to yeah, just have the conversation. And I, I just find the work that you do uh, so illuminating, uh, and uh, it's and I really hope that our, our listeners do too. So uh, thank you so much. Where can people go and find more uh, Mark Vernon? Yeah, well, thanks. Maybe just to return the the appreciation Sanson as well, because uh, and we've talked sort of off and on, I guess, mm. um, over the years, and particularly um, through the mutual friend with Pippa. But then, you know, we we talked about Sunday Senbi in more formal settings mm. as well, and so I, I appreciate the the spirit that's in you um, that leads you Thank to you. pursue these projects and ventures and see where they take you and so on. Um, so I, I think this this very much part of the. Um, the spirit of our times um, and to try and do something constructive not just you know critical which is much harder actually so uh, thank you very much a plug yeah um, there we go. Go, go, to my, go to my website go to my <laughs> website right. so it's markvernon.com and and uh, there's lots of stuff there i hope how did you like that chat it's pretty cool uh i'm always very touched when our guests say nice things about uh the work that we do and the work that I do. Even then, I sort of uh, slightly dismissed uh, his uh, nice compliment about our work by uh, switching it to we instead of I. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it can seem quite a sort of lonely uh, pursuit sometimes, uh, particularly during lockdown when you're in your own room sort of broadcasting ideas uh, out there. But, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. People like being uh, complimented for things, but uh, yeah, particularly there's something with someone like him who is, you know, a brainiac who's sort of got all the degrees, who trained to be a vicar and what have you. And uh, uh, there's a bit of it when I'm in my line of work where I've sort of become a sort of self appointed secular vicar uh, that, yeah, you can bring those doubts about your credentials when. I've been doing this. I've been putting it into action and all that stuff. But yeah, it still means a lot when people say that. So uh, yeah, what else has been going on in our uh, the life on this world? We went to wilderness. Yeah, so I was on holiday. That's why this didn't come out. And we just got back from wilderness festival. And if you are listening to this because you first encountered Sunday Assembly and the life on this project at wilderness, hello, greetings. Guten Morgen, if you're German, and it is the morning near you. Uh, yeah, and it was so much fun. Wilderness is a ridiculous festival, semi-ridiculous festival, which is just so ritzy and la-di-da. Uh, it's got a champagne bar sponsored by Verve Clicquot. It is not the counterculture, let me tell you that. But it is also beautiful and wonderful, and just to be with thousands of people together, after they had had PCR tests and been gone through various uh, stringent COVID protocols, uh, 
it was just magical to be with people again. And we hosted a number of different events. We did one on the joy of gathering, which goes without saying what that was about. And the second was about small groups and how we think with community. We've got to start big. Uh, and the last one, and this was the one which was most ridiculous, most fun, was a mass wedding. Can you imagine that? That is definitely a step on the way to being a true cult leader is uh, officiating in a mass wedding. And the reason we did that was we wanted to create an event for all the folk who had had their weddings cancelled, postponed or delayed due to COVID. And so we did it and it was blistering. Uh, what I love about Particularly the, what the festival environment gives you is it's this ability to do something important whilst also smashing in as much silliness as possible. People often think that those are opposed and that's not at all the case. So you can go and we had nudity in it because someone said they wanted nudity. Uh, we had a sort of impromptu uh, stag do and hen do. Uh, we had lots of uh, silliness and fun, but still when you're talking about love, when you're talking about marriage, when you're talking about commitment, when you're talking about uh, the institution of marriage, which sort of goes back right to, um, you know, pre-human ancestors, you can't help but sort of create something which becomes, you know, pretty emotional. And uh, that's what we did. Uh, and we also sang banging tunes. So... Yeah, I'm going to log out now, say goodbye. Yeah, please go and follow us on all the different places you can follow us. Uh, say hi on social media if you haven't yet said hi. And thank you so much for listening. Thanks to the wonderful Mark Vernon for being a guest. Thanks to Mav Shetty for editing this. And thanks to Roman Rapak and Miro Shot for the music that you're listening to right now.